1 John chapter 5. We'll be in verses 6 to 21. If you don't have a Bible, Scripture will be printed on the screen behind me. And also in our church app, there's a sermon listening guide, and the Scripture is at the top of that listening guide if you'd like to follow along there as well. 1 John chapter 5, verses 6 through 21. This is he who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ. Not by the water only, but by the water and the blood. And the Spirit is the one who testifies, because the Spirit is the truth. For there are three that testify, the Spirit and the water and the blood. And these three agree. If we receive the testimony of men, the testimony of God is greater. For this is the testimony of God that he has borne concerning his Son. Whoever believes in the Son of God has the testimony in himself. Whoever does not believe God has made him a liar because he has not believed in the testimony that God has borne concerning his son. And this is the testimony that God gave us, that God gave us eternal life, and this life is in his son. Whoever has the son has life. Whoever does not have the son of God does not have life. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. And this is the confidence that we have toward him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the request that we have asked of him. If anyone sees his brother committing a sin not leading to death, he shall ask and God will give him life to those who commit sins that do not lead to death. There is sin that leads to death. I do not say that one should pray for that. All wrongdoing is sin, but there is sin that does not lead to death. We know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning, but he who was born of God protects him, and the evil one does not touch him. We know that we are from God, and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true. And we are in him who is true, in his Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. Undoubtedly, you've had a moment in your life where your confidence has been shaken. Maybe on the heels of somebody saying something unkind or untrue about you. Or maybe on the heels of being fired from a job. Or maybe on the heels of just real relational dysfunction and difficulty. Shaken confidence, it, it comes about through a circumstance, but circumstances are not the cause of shaken confidence. Shaken confidence comes from deep within. And at the core of it, it is a deep, deep insecurity that all of us have. Singer-songwriter Madonna said this in an interview. All of my will has always been to conquer some horrible feeling of inadequacy. I'm always struggling with that fear. My drive in life is from this horrible fear 
of being mediocre. And that's always pushing me, pushing me. Because even though I've become somebody, I still have to prove that I'm somebody. My struggle has never ended, and it probably never will. Comedian and actor Bill Murray shares this as the reason for his inability to commit in relationships with his long struggles with failed relationships. When he was asked what keeps him from committing, he said this, what stops any of us is we're kind of really ugly if we look really hard. We're not who we think we are. We're not as wonderful as we think we are. You will never find confidence by looking within yourself. You'll never find confidence by looking to somebody else. And you'll never find confidence by looking at your success. Confidence is found in God's presence. That's what John is teaching this group of believers in the first century whose confidence has been severely shaken. He says to them in verse 13, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you may have confidence that you have eternal life. So why can confidence be found in God's presence? First, because Christ died for you. Verse 6, this is he who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ, not by the water only, but by the water and the blood. Now, what do water and blood refer to? Well, water refers to Jesus' baptism at the hands of John the Baptist. It marked the beginning of his public ministry. But not only his baptism, but then the, the baptizing ministry that Jesus had. When he would baptize those who believed in him with the Holy Spirit through a baptism done by water in Jesus' name. So water refers to Jesus' baptism but then his baptizing ministry in which he would baptize those who believed in him. Now, what does the blood refer to? Blood refers to Jesus' death on the cross when he spilled his blood, when he laid down his life. So Jesus coming by water was the beginning of his ministry. Jesus coming by blood marked the end of his earthly ministry. The question becomes, why does John put such an emphasis here on the water and the blood? End of verse 6. Not by water only, John says, but by water and the blood. The group of people that broke off from this early church to start their own fellowship were emphasizing Jesus coming by water only. They emphasized Jesus' baptism. They didn't emphasize the blood. They emphasized his baptism, which equated to being anointed with the Holy Spirit. 
which this group claim to be anointed with the Holy Spirit, and therefore they claim to no longer sin, and they claim to be very, very close to God. And so they claim that Jesus came by water only. And it produced this, this false teaching amongst this group. Anointed by the Spirit, no longer sin, really close to God. This false teaching in the first century that John's addressing has played out through history. Let me explain just briefly how it's played out through history and how it affects your life today. In the 1700s, John Wesley taught uh, two works of grace. He basically taught that there was the first work of grace where you trusted in Jesus and you were saved, but then sometime later in your life, there was a second work of grace, a second blessing of sorts, by which you kind of ascended into this next level of holiness. You got serious with God. You really dedicated your life to God. You sinned less. This birthed the higher life movement, which was a movement, another variation of this two-blessing Christianity. Higher life movement said, first blessing, you come to trust Christ, you're saved, but then sometime later in your life, you would get this second blessing. And the second blessing was about getting serious with God. So the first blessing was about getting saved. Second blessing was about getting serious with God. The first blessing, after the first blessing, you weren't filled with the Holy Spirit. And you lived a defeated life. But then once you got this second blessing, you became filled with the Holy Spirit and you lived a victorious Christian life. This gave birth to the Pentecostal movement in 1900 which spoke of the second baptism, the spirit baptism, where you'd be baptized with the Holy Spirit. And once you were baptized with the Holy Spirit, the evidence would be that you would speak in tongues. Now, I share all of those because those are all variations of what John is addressing here, that Jesus came by water only. And if I could sum it up, it would be this. That that Jesus' death for you on the cross saves you, but then you leave the cross behind. You leave the cross behind, and then you press forward and work really, really hard to ascend to this next level of holiness where you sin less, and, and, it's, and it's accompanied by this second work of grace or the second blessing, and you really have to get hold of it to live holy. That's the false teaching that was playing out which brings us to how this affects your life today. Now, you may have just heard all of that and say, ah, great, got some good religious history. Doesn't really impact me, but thanks for sharing that. How does it impact you today? Let me ask you this question. How often do you consider a day good or bad based on the quantity or the quality of your production in that day? How often do you consider a day good or bad based on the quantity or the quality of your production? This is performance-based living. And it's a really crummy way to live life. Why? Because your happiness and your worth as a human being is tied to your performance 
and the performance of others. Why is that crummy? Let's start with the performance of others. Think about your workplace. Think about your vocation, your job, your career. When you tie your happiness and worth to the performance of others, what happens when others don't perform well and let you down and affect you? See, when your happiness and worth is tied to the performance of others, then to some degree, other people are controlling your happiness and your worth. Now, what about your own performance? Well, your own performance is imperfect. And so when you tie your happiness and worth to your own performance, then your imperfection and your sin is controlling you and determining whether you're happy or whether you're worth something. Is performance-based living. There's a much better way to live. And God testifies it to it in verses six to nine. Verses seven and eight. For there are three that testify, the spirit and the water and the blood, and these three agree. In the Old Testament, in the New Testament, important issues were determined by two or three witnesses. So there's three witnesses here, the Holy Spirit, the water, Jesus' baptism, the blood is death on the cross. Verse nine, if we receive the testimony of men, the testimony of God is greater. For this is the testimony of God that he has borne concerning his son. One commentator sums this up really, really well when he says this. One time in the course of world history, God appears as witness speaks clearly, and gives proof and secure direction that took place at the sending of the Christ. So if performance-based living is a crummy way to do life, what's the better way? What's the way that God is testifying to here? What's the way that God is giving witness to? Verses 11 and 12. And this is the testimony that God gave us eternal life and this life is in his son. Whoever has the son has life. Whoever does not have the son of God does not have life. Eternal life in John's gospel, in John's letters, doesn't refer to some future quality of life one day. When John talks about eternal life, He's talking about a different kind of life now. And specifically here, a life in which your happiness and your worth is not tied to your performance or the performance of others. A life in which your happiness and your worth is tied to the performance of Jesus Christ that he lived the perfect life you could never live. Jesus Christ is the only human being who has ever lived a perfect life. And then he died to take the punishment for your sin so that you would no longer be defined by your sin or your sinlessness. It's not defined by your performance. 
defined by Jesus Christ. It becomes yours by faith. The question is, do you have Christ? He who has the Son has life. Have you trusted Christ? Are you actively trusting Christ and finding your happiness and your worth in him? Why can confidence be found in God's presence? Because Christ died for you. Second, because Christ lives for you. Verse 16, if anyone sees his brother committing a sin not leading to death, he shall ask and God will give him life. To those who commit sins that do not lead to death, there is sin that leads to death. Now, context is so important here because these are the kind of verses that you can rip out of context and then launch out into this very, very unhealthy, speculative journey on what is the sin that I can commit that's gonna forfeit my salvation. Remember the context here. There's this group of people that had broken off from this church, started their own fellowship, claimed to know God, but they were walking in sin. They were walking in error and they were unrepentant of it. Verse 18, the first half of verse 18 really unpacks what is the sin that leads to death and what's the sin that doesn't lead to death. Verse 18, but he who was born of God protects him. Back up, first half. We know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning. Meaning, does not continue in a pattern of sin without repenting. This is not speaking of perfection. And not even pattern of sin, repent, and then never struggle with it with, struggle it with, it with the rest of your life. No, it means pattern of sin, repent, fall again, repent, fall again, repent. The sin that leads to death is a heart unchanged by God's love in Christ that persists in actions and commitments that aren't in line with the gospel. Verse 18 basically says this, a believer in Christ cannot commit the sin that leads to death. The sin that leads to death is the sin of unbelief that doesn't repent. It's the sin of unbelief that, that doesn't lead to repentance. Now, here's what's so amazing about verse 18. Why does everyone who has been born of God not keep on sinning? Last half of verse 18. But he who was born of God protects him, and the evil one does not touch him. The one born of God here is Jesus Christ. It says Jesus Christ protects him. The reason... that you repent of sin. The reason that you don't just keep going and going and going without repenting is not because you're a super strong Christian, nor is it because you have this like amazing love for Christ that keeps your heart soft, or, or that you have this amazing willpower that can just, in the middle of sin, turn and repent. No, the reason that you repent is because Jesus Christ protects you. He keeps your heart soft. So repentance is a sign that Jesus 
is keeping your heart soft. And notice what verse 18 says. Not only does Christ protect you, but and the evil one does not touch him. John is making the point that the evil one's at work. And when we talk about the evil one being at work, it's oftentimes the temptation, kind of big temptations. Temptation to commit adultery or temptation to abuse a substance or temptation to cheat or temptation to lie. But that's not the work of the devil in this context, in this level, in this letter. The work of the evil one in this letter, remember the context. This group of people had broken off from the church, claimed to be anointed by the Spirit, said they were no longer sinning, claimed to have this deep, intimate relationship with God. And the believers whom John is writing to are looking at this going, maybe we're missing something here. It's very tempting for them to, to believe and maybe move out with this group. I mean, they had the anointing of the Spirit. They were no longer sinning. And John says, no, this is a work of the devil. The evil one masquerades as an angel of light, which means his deception looks really good on the outside. This was a, a temptation towards the false doctrine of sinless perfection that they were facing. And John was saying, Jesus will protect you, right? Verse 20, and we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true. And we are in him who is true. In his Son, Jesus Christ, he is the true God and eternal life. What's the understanding that Jesus gives? It's that faithful gospel living is not marked by sinless perfection, but rather by regular repentance. Faithful gospel living is marked by regular Repentance, turning from sin regularly and turning to Jesus Christ. Now, this has two points of application. First, marriage. Kim and I, after 14 years, going on 15 years of marriage, are closer today than we were when we first got married not because we argue less and have less conflict, but because we repent quicker when we're in conflict and when we're in an argument. I get really nervous when I hear couples say, we don't argue. We never get in conflict. And the reason I get nervous is that that really communicates one of two things. Either that couple is living parallel lives, coexistent lives. Yes, they live under the same roof, but basically just living separate lives. No intimacy, no real relationship. Therefore, no conflict. 
or it's that they're pretending in front of each other. They're hiding in front of each other. They're not being transparent. They're not being real. They're not being honest where the tension happens, where conflict happens. If you're having to repent often in marriage, that's a good, healthy sign that Jesus is keeping your heart soft. It's healthy. Second point of application, raising children. Parents, your goal is not to show your children how perfect of a Christian you are, that you never worry, that you never get angry, that you never lose your temper, that you're always patient, that you're always joyful, that you're never sad. No, your goal as a parent is to show your children how to repent, how to turn from sin and turn to Jesus Christ. If you raise your kids with a goal, I'm going to show my kids how perfect I am, then you're basically emphasizing the water only that John's addressing here in John chapter 5. It's about your performance. For children, when they leave the nest, and I'm going to assume here, not, you know, there are families where kids and adults are, are coming to Christ at different times, but for a child that, that grows up in a Christian home with the gospel, when that child leaves the nest and is asked, how did you learn the gospel of Christ growing up through your parents? May it be that they say, I learned how to ask forgiveness. And I learned how to grant forgiveness. And I learned how to repent because I watched my mommy and daddy turn from their sin and turn to Christ all the time. That's the gospel. Why can confidence be found in God's presence? First, Christ died for you. Second, Christ lives for you. And finally, because God hears you. God hears you. Verses 14 to 15. And this is the confidence that we have toward him. That if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the request that we have asked of him. Now, at first glance, this seems to be verses that would say, whatever you ask, you're going to get. If it's a godly request, for the most part, you're going to get it. Right? But if you dig deeper, that's not what these verses are teaching. A couple phrases that are important. Number one, if we ask anything according to his will, What's that teach about prayer? It teaches that prayer is the means that God uses to give his people what he wants, not what we want. It's according to his will. Second phrase, we know that we have the request that we have asked of him. This can't mean that there's this 100% guarantee that when you pray to God and, and request something that you're going to get it because there are numerous examples throughout the scriptures of that not happening, even the most godly requests. Deuteronomy chapter 3, God turned down Moses' request to cross the Jordan. 
There's times in the prophets, Micah and Jeremiah being examples, when God's people, God's people cry out and he doesn't answer. Or in 2 Corinthians 12, Paul asked God to remove the thorn from his flesh, and God didn't grant that request. Then you have Matthew chapter 26, when Jesus, in his full humanity, asks not to go to the cross, and God didn't grant that request. So how are we to understand these verses then? Well, the emphasis in these verses in 14 and 15 is on God hearing. Verse 14, if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. Verse 15, and we know that he hears us in whatever we ask. The emphasis is on God hearing, which teaches us something very important about prayer. And it's this. Prayer is understood not primarily as communicating in order to acquire petitions or to somehow force God's hand, but as communion with God. God's simple hearing of our requests is tantamount to receiving a favorable answer. In verse 14, where it talks about our confidence towards him or toward him, that phrase toward him can also be translated before God or in God's presence. Confidence in God's presence. He hears us. That we have confidence in his presence because we know that he hears us. In 1 Corinthians 13, Paul talks about a vision of believers before God. And that vision is not that believers get unlimited yeses to their asks. The vision is about meeting God face to face. That it's about living before the face of God. That when we talk to him, he hears us. And not only does he hear us, but his face is turned toward us. That when Jesus died on the cross and died in our place and took away our sin and removed our sin, God's face was turned towards us. You and I, when we sin, turn away from God all the time. Our face turns away all the time. The beauty of what the Bible teaches is that it's not this cat and mouse game where you turn away from God and you sin and God turns his face away from you and then waits for you to jump through religious loopholes. You know, confession and assurance. And if it's good enough, when you turn back, yeah, God may turn his face back to you. No, through the finished work of Christ, God's face is turned towards you even when you turn and run headlong the other way. He never takes his gaze off you because it's a gaze of love that has been won by Jesus Christ. God's gaze is always upon you. Dallas Willard, who lost his mother at a young age, as a young child, writes about this little boy who lost his mom. And he says that this little boy, particularly at night, would get really sad and really lonely. And he would go into his father's room and he'd say, Dad, can I sleep with you tonight? And when he would go into that dark room and lay down and to go to sleep with his father, it wasn't enough that his father was just with him. 
He needed to know that his father's face in the dark was turned towards him. And so he would say, Father, is your face turned toward me now? His father would say, yes, you're not alone. I'm with you. My face is turned towards you. And when this little boy was assured that his father's face was turned towards him, then he could rest. Prayer is about intimacy and relationship with God. A God who, because of Christ, a God whose face is turned towards you all the time, that his gaze of love is upon you. I was talking to a Christian counselor recently, and she was telling me how she was alarmed at the number of clients that had come in to see her about various issues. But that when she would ask, have you, have you talked to God about this issue? Have you gone to him in prayer? She said she's been alarmed by the number of answers of no that she's gotten. And there's been two reasons for the no's. One is that these clients, they just hadn't, it hadn't even crossed their mind to pray about it. And I would just add that that's probably due to the fact that if you view prayer as just a mechanism to get an answer, if prayer is just the mechanism by which you get what you want or you get an answer, it only takes a number of what you would say are non-answers or not getting what you want to give up on that mechanism. Like, I, that mechanism doesn't work, so I'm not gonna pray anymore. That was one reason. The other reason is that she said some of, them, some of it was they didn't feel like it was something that, they could talk to God about. It was so kind of trivial and, and they didn't want to bother him. Listen, God the Father's face is turned towards you. And he wants you to live before his face with every last minor detail of your life. There is no spiritual compartment and non-spiritual compartment. It's living before the face of God with everything, knowing that his face is turned towards you and that it delights him when you bring things to him. If you've trusted Christ, God's face is turned towards you. And there is soul-satisfying intimacy found in communion with him. If you haven't trusted Christ, and you're not experiencing that soul-satisfying intimacy in communion with God, my question would be, what keeps you from trusting Christ? What keeps you from trusting him? Faith in Christ is the only way you can stand in God's presence with unshakable confidence. And faith in Christ is the only way that you can find happiness and worth that is disconnected from your performance. Let's pray. Father, Father,
we, we confess our performance-based living. We confess how often our happiness and our worth is tied up in our performance or the performance of others. And it strips joy so quickly. Father, thank you that you sent Jesus and that he came by water and blood. And then our worth and our happiness is tied up in the performance of Christ. And thank you that you give us this meal, the Lord's Supper, to remind us where our worth comes from and where our happiness comes from. Father, as we enjoy this meal, would you use it in a mighty way by your spirit to soften our hearts that we would be quick to repent and turn to you and find life again. And we pray this all in Christ's name, amen.